0: Hello Flight Instructors and NAFI members, this is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you back for the 50th, you heard it right, 55-0, 50th time to the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go, and boy oh boy are we excited about this, I'm excited about this. Not many podcasts make it to 50, not even a whole lot of them make it past episode 10. So the fact that we've done that five times is incredible. It's been a a massive journey for, I think, a little over a year and a half now. And it's something that we're so excited about that we're going to continue to do it. Um... It's been so much fun. I, I learned a new skill. I never thought I'd be on a podcast, much less host a podcast and create a podcast. And that's the beauty of Naffy. You know, we have the ability to try to figure out where the needs are for flight instructors, and and we try to fill them with a little bit of fun and, and education. And you know, not everybody has an hour or even a half an hour to watch a video online, whether it be YouTube or the Naffy website. And we figured there's so much good stuff, good content that maybe you might be able to listen to in the car. Maybe it helps make your, your commute to the airport a little bit more enjoyable, a little bit more fun. Um, and maybe you'll learn something in the process. But, you know, my favorite thing, and this is what I say about naffy so many times, is it is a family. It is the NAFI family. And the best part about a family is that they share with each other, they share stories, they share experiences. It's like passing the salad around the dinner table while sharing your favorite story of what happened to you that one time with with that one student, and uh, those kinds of things not just build your educational level, but they build camaraderie, they build your enthusiasm for what we do and and um, how we do it in uh, you know just the best kind of way. So. With that in mind, I I do have to say that uh, this 50th episode is not quite the pomp and circumstance that I had hoped. Um, We, as in my family, are moving right now, and so I haven't had a chance to really make the episode that I want to make. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold my plans for episode 60, and then we can do something truly special. But In the meantime, my favorite part about all of this is talking to all of you. I've gotten to talk to all kinds of members, um, whether it be for this podcast specifically, like Andy Watson, the air traffic controller, or, um, you know, our uh, Victor Vogel, one of our board members, and uh, Elizabeth Vogelmore, and Mike Jesch, and all of these other amazing people, and and I want to keep that up. I feel like we have um we haven't had enough of that in the podcast just yet i haven't gotten my fill and i probably never will so if you've got something interesting to say some cool stories to share just a desire to be on the podcast i'm sure we'll come up with something to talk about if there's one thing flight instructors do well it's it's talking about stuff Give me a call or send me an email. So our, our office line is 866-806-6156. My email is J-N-I-E-H-A-U-S at org. I want to talk to you um, because NAFFI members are important to us. You guys are the most important people that we know. And I know whether you are too modest to say it or not that you have something cool to share. And this is the perfect platform to do it. NAFFI is the uh, the jar that holds the water and you guys are the water we're nothing without it being full so um it's really important to us that we try to put you guys on a pedestal and and show people how amazing you all are because you are amazing um before we get into the episode itself, you know, standard podcasting stuff, if, especially for the 50th episode, if you haven't given us a rating on one of the platforms, if you haven't followed and subscribed to us on one of the platforms, if you haven't joined NAFI, www.naffynet.org, um, we need you to because, again, we... Can't do this without you. We can't do this without all of your experience, but we also can't do it without your membership because this is how we continue to operate. So please, 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 um, just take a second and uh, and and even just click the subscribe button. And even if you don't listen to all the episodes, although I'd like you to, it still helps. So um, the last episode of our ten question challenge did seem like a fitting episode for 50th podcast and that was with the one and only rod machado and uh, so if you're not familiar with the 10 question challenge essentially we took 10 questions and gave it to a whole bunch of very successful flight instructors who have achieved what they wanted to achieve in their career whether that's a a master instructor a lifetime um, career of instructing an airline captain a uh, business aviation captain, a flight school owner, whatever that desirable job is to that person, they achieved it. And we thought that by talking to them, maybe you could achieve whatever it is that you desire to by learning lessons from them on how things went well, maybe what might not have gone so well. And uh, um, so in this episode, we talked with Rod Machado about his experience and how Rod Machado became Rod Machado. And it's bittersweet because, yes, he was the last one, but it allows me to start on phase two, which I have started on, and that's compiling all the answers from these individuals. And um, I think that not only can we come to some correlations as, as NAFI and, and help you uh, um, get to those correlations, I think you can come up with your own by looking at the data because that's half the battle. So you get what you need, out of that. And and if that's motivation, if that is ideas, it could be anything. Um, But I think it'll help. So we're going to distribute that as soon as I'm done compiling all of those things. But without further ado, the last 10 question challenge, the one, the only, and the amazing Rod Machado. Today, I am so incredibly pleased. You know him. I know him. Rod Machado is my guest. Now, I'm sure you know a lot about him already, but we'll go through a few items here. He is an ATP, an MEI, and a CFI. He's been instructing since 1973, so 49 years of flight instruction experience, He's taught in classrooms around the world. He spent 15 years as AOPA's National Flight Instructor Spokesman. (laughs) My personal favorite part of this, he's the CFI voice on Microsoft Flight Sim. He spent 18 years as a columnist for AOPA Pilot Magazine and 26 years for Flight Training Magazine. He's the owner of RodMachado.com, and he has taught millions around the world the passion for aviation and flying. Rod, thank you so much for being here today.
1: My pleasure, John. It's uh, it's a real honor to be here and participate in the NAFI 10-Question Challenge. I wasn't sure exactly what that was when I was first invited to do it, but uh, had the words NAFI in it and challenge and aviation, so <laughs> how could I resist?
0: Well, that's wonderful. I, I am humbled that you're here, and uh, in typical fashion, we'll just sort of jump right into this. Sounds good. So, was flight instruction part of your original career plan or was it something you never anticipated doing?
1: I never really thought much about flight instructing when uh, I was taking flying lessons, but it became apparent to me that that was the vehicle uh, to, for upward mobility in aviation. And, um, you, you know, once you, I guess the, the real mitigating factor was for me when all of a sudden I realized, you know, I could actually fly and people will pay me money to fly in an airplane with them and you know that is uh you know that's the stuff dreams are made out of so i i just couldn't resist and so once i started flight instructing though it became very apparent to me that there was a depth of education that uh you just didn't anticipate as a uh, a private commercial instrument rated pilot and that is you know I, i all of a sudden i realized that there was so much more to learn uh, beyond the private pilot, commercial pilot level. And, and I didn't realize that until I, until I started teaching. It's like Richard Bach says in his book, Illusions, you know, we teach best what we need to learn most. And the act of teaching made me realize that, for example, uh, a private pilot may understand a stall one way. A flight instructor, somebody that's been doing it for uh, any length of time, all of a sudden has 10, 15, 20 ways of understanding a stall. And you might even say 10, 15, 20 ways of having someone get them into a stall that they didn't anticipate. And therein, of course, lies the challenge and the great interest uh, and the excitement too. So that's that that became just fascinating to me. And then, of course, as I continue to teach, uh, it it it's such a humbling experience because here I think I know something. And then I start teaching it. And one of two things happen. Uh, either my students start looking at me like a dog looking at a fan. And uh-huh. you know what that's like. They go like, what? Like, uh-huh. and, and and or as I'm speaking it, all of a sudden, you know, I, it's, it's basically being rerouted, that information, and sent back into my ears. I'm listening to what I'm saying. And all of a sudden, I start saying to myself, oh, what? And it doesn't make any sense. So that was the humbling experience, but it, it taught me that if I want to learn something, then it's always best to approach it as if I'm going to teach that thing. And uh, that was uh, that was a powerful experience. So that was one of the reasons why I found that uh, uh, flight training was such a, a rewarding experience for me. The other fact is that you know being up in the air is just amazingly exciting of course and i've never lost the enthusiasm for being up in the air in fact the most wonderful phrase in all of uh, in all of aviation for that matter the 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 most beautiful and exciting phrase in the entire lexicon of the English language is cleared for takeoff. Mm. That's such an exciting phrase. Uh, Of course, clear to land is the ultimate buzzkill, but uh, clear for the option. Uh, I I like that. That's always a good one. And that always gets me excited too. So uh, a tremendous experience. And of course, I had the opportunity um, well, let's put it this way, I had the opportunity to apply for the airlines, which I did in 1976, and uh, the I, I got interviewed by United Airlines, and, and they just didn't want somebody with 2,000 hours of Cessna 150 time. Mm-hmm. So even if it was Cessna 150 stretched heavy. So like a small fish, they threw me back in the water. And uh, that was uh, pretty much the end of any airline ambitions I had. And it's not like now, of course, where um, people are, airlines are looking to hire a, a lot of tens of thousands of pilots in the next few decades. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I, and I say that with, uh, uh, the, w- with uh, conviction uh, and certainty because uh, my place was teaching people how to fly. I just love it. Or teaching people on the ground, teaching them about aviation, what have you. That's it's that's just exciting.
0: One of the things I I really like what you said about the stalls and and the idea that uh, you watch a lot of other people get into stalls or inadvertent stalls. I think, and maybe you mentioned, maybe you meant to to say it this way or not, but I think it, there's also importance in watching people do those things, stalls included, incorrectly. The amount of things that you learn from watching somebody not do it the way it's supposed to be done, it, it helps improve you as a pilot and helps improve you as a teacher because oh. you learn those things and learn to anticipate what could happen.
1: Yes. Well, <clears throat> that's very, very true. As a matter of fact, um, you know, there there are several ways of doing things correctly, There are a whole lot more ways of doing things incorrectly. And to reference what you you just said, which is a a very, very interesting point. There was a book written in 1929 by a fellow named Barrett Studley, Barrett Studley, and it was on flight training. That was the name of the book. And uh, he made a statement in there I thought was fascinating. He said, if you want to teach people to land, you need to get them to make the mistakes sooner and make them quicker so that they can learn from the mistakes more rapidly. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was in the late 1920s, he introduced a concept called fanning, F-A-N-N-I-N-G. And it's a pretty uh, esoteric concept. I've written about it a couple of times, and it's in my How to Fly an Airplane Handbook, more as an artifact than an an actual teaching technique. But what he would do is he would have them come in, excuse me, He would have them come in uh, to land uh, and when on final approach he would have them exaggerate the motion of the elevator control and what that did was it allowed them to see the effect of making the mistake of over controlling. He would actually have them approach and land moving the, uh, in this case, it was a joystick, uh, which didn't bring them much joy, I might add, uh, but they were making mistakes and they could see exactly what the mistake did in terms of the effect that it produced on the airplane. And then after, you know, maybe about 30, 40 minutes of that, he would then start correcting them, modifying the behavior, and thus they learned to land in a more accelerated manner. It's a fascinating concept. And so, uh, yeah, so you learn a lot of different ways about how people make mistakes. And of course, if you spend enough time in the cockpit, you, you can see this coming like, you know, a mile away, mm-hmm. two miles away, or in many cases, a thousand miles away, uh, you see what's going to happen. You anticipate it, which by the way, also, uh, it is a fascinating concept of, uh, how this inspires confidence in many flight instructors. It's pretty hard to shock a seasoned flight instructor in, in other words because they've seen many things so in that sense uh, a, an experienced flight instructor has a lot more confidence because they know what the possibilities are in terms of what the airplane will do most important they know how to prevent it prevent the airplane from from doing something they don't want it to do because they've seen the mistakes so that's uh, that's exceptionally uh, useful in terms of uh, training. And as a, an aside to that, see, you get me all excited talking about uh, aviation and a, a flight instruction concept. One of the things I would do with my flight instructor students is to help them see what mistakes they could anticipate by students and, most importantly, what they should let the student get away with, what is reasonable to let a student get away with, you know, how high is too high to flare? How much of a bounce is too much of a bounce? Uh, that is typically not knowledge. the The average flight instructor get, gets a chance to acquire, uh, let's say, in the uh, under the purview of another experienced CFI. They have to go out and find that out on their own. Which, <laughs> by the way, it can be exciting. But in some cases, it's much better to kind of get that under controlled conditions, if possible. So, that's my take on that so reflecting on your instructor skill with your first student uh how well do you think you did well um i think i did fine which is is an interesting thing because i only had about 3.4 hours of dual in preparation for my cfi before i took my cfi check ride with a fellow by the name of uh, uh barton bob barton i think uh in long beach and it was it was interesting because uh, four hours of dual. And I did that over a week's period. Now, how in the heck could somebody get a CFI rating with 3.4 hours of dual? And uh, it amazes me to this day, but that, that was it. Uh, And it it just dawned on me that uh, one thing I knew is I I had a basic grasp, uh, a good private pilot, commercial pilots, grasp of aviation. I read the books and um, understood the basic concepts, most important though uh, was uh, I knew how to talk, and I knew how to that the flight instructor check ride was you know really an evaluation of how well you teach, not how well you fly. The assumption is that you have a basic understanding of how to fly, and uh, that never should be in doubt, of course, when you take your cFI check ride, but uh, I knew how to talk and i went into the uh, check ride and i remember it very very well i was just about as nervous as you could be uh, and i went into the check ride and uh, i just when he said i want you to explain to me how you do a uh whatever it was a lazy eight so i just assumed he was a student and i taught him like a student and that worked out very well for me <clears throat> but here's the interesting thing <clears throat> that's not the interesting part of this whole deal it amazes me that a person could have 3.4 hours and be an acceptable flawed instructor. So, and I was acceptable when I first started. I I get I did fine. And I, I often wondered how did I get away with that, <clears throat> and maybe it was a function of character, you know, because I like people and I always had their their interest at heart, and I wanted uh, them to do well, not because I wanted to impress other people with how well they did. I wanted them to do well for themselves. Uh, you know, it's just pure empathy in this case. But your average teacher that teaches in high school or elementary school. The average teacher has uh, goes to school for about five years to learn how to teach, to get a teaching credential in California. And even then, you have a lot of, well, uh, teachers that really aren't very good teachers in our educational system. And you've experienced them yourself. I have too. So uh, just the amount of training time is not what makes a good teacher. What makes a good teacher, in my impression, is uh, that you have an, an interest in your students, your, your reward system, your um, incentive system is that students do well, not for you, but do well because you want them to do well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that was always my incentive system. And yet I still had no real comprehension about how to go about teaching someone. So I did uh, what, Anybody in that situation would do. We didn't have a syllabus back in 1973. Um, there was we had a flight test guide that was about this big, tiny little thing, and it was uh, it's like a, the size of a book of stamps would come in today. wasn't much to it, and uh, it had just a bunch of little statements in there about what needs to be taught, kind of like the uh, P- uh, PTS extremely light, and. Uh, So I thought, okay, I'm going to teach them the way that I was taught. And I pulled out my logbook and I used that as the method of teaching students. What was interesting about that was I learned at Amelia Reed Aviation and I was taught by uh, uh, the progeny of World War II pilots. And these were all very um, stick and rudder immersed flight instructors and they were all attitude plus power equals performance, rudder aileron combination, pitch control. And it was, it was very much pure stick and rudder flight training. So I took a look at my logbook, and I went through and I taught my students exactly as I was taught primary students, of course, uh, that way. And here's why I could do that. I had good instruction. If I didn't have good instruction, I I just would not have been able to do that. I, I got lucky. Because I had just absolutely amazing instructors and uh, they left me with a, a, uh, an outline, a guide, so to speak, the model uh, by which I could teach people and expect you know relative success that way. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why I developed a stick and rudder uh flight training syllabus that was based on the original way I was taught as the, the basic outline it's available on my website at rodmachado.com for free. You just go sign up and, and pick it up. And uh a lot of people use the flight training syllabus and it's a very effective, minimalist way to teach somebody how to fly. And you can add more on to it of course, but uh it was uh it was just very successful. So worked out pretty well for me in that instance.
0: Here's one of the questions that I'm really excited to ask you because Rod Machado is a mentor to so many uh, more than I think you, you uh, can count Um, and sort of flip that around and um, say, well, so many of us have had a mentor who was yours and and what was the most meaningful thing that, that you learned from them?
1: Well, again, thanks. Thanks very much for that comment. I don't know how much of a mentor I am. I hope somebody has found or some folks have found some of the things I've done, uh, to be useful. And that would, of course, please me to no end. But again, I talk about being fortunate, uh, and, and maybe fortune is another word for being open to, uh, the, and being receptive to a certain type of learning experiences. Um, it's probably the, uh, probably the latter rather than the former, but, uh, It was. uh, I was very fortunate to have so many people that taught me unique things, and and I would feel it's actually a very good question. It I I would be stumped if I gave you just one response. So let me let me give you a few responses to the question, if you don't mind, which of course is my nature. Why answer with one answer when you can answer with four or five? Um, So (laughs) Amelia Reed was one of my first instructors. And I learned uh, uh, at her flight school, Amelia Reed Aviation. And I remember getting out of the airplane one time and she left me with this indelible impression about, uh, about the things that count. Uh, the big things are the small things that count in aviation. I got out of the airplane. I didn't wrap the seat belt around the seat and tidy up. And as I'm walking out of the airplane, she says, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. Come back here! Come back here!" And I, and of course, whenever somebody does this to me, I, having grown up in Catholic school, I always look around to see if maybe I'm lucky enough to have somebody else that actually uh, is the, the the victim here, uh, but uh, and let them do the perp walk. But so anyway, so it was me. So I walked back and she says, look, you got to tidy this thing up. You want to keep everything neat. And she says, it's the small things that will get you in aviation. And she didn't mean seatbelt. That was just an example. It was, in in essence, uh, the reflection of what you have to do in an airplane if you want to be safe. Yeah, the big things are all very important, but the small things... Tuning in the wrong frequency, not setting the altimeter setting, yada yada yada. Everybody has a good understanding of that. Well, that set me off uh, with a uh, uh, the inspiration to pay attention to the smaller things. That was very very important. Some of the more amazing uh, events that uh, affected me was a well as an example a fellow by the name of Jan Sakert, who was a uh, an ex marine. <clears throat> he was a marine uh, was in the uh, a Korean War, had this insanely commanding presence. He taught ground school and he taught a ground school at a company I was going to work for at a, you know, in my early twenties. And I watched him teach. I have never seen somebody uh, command an audience like he did. It was insanely impressive. And he had a way of getting people's attention that uh, to me, uh, well, Here's why he got people's attention. When I asked him what he did, because, you know, the only way to really get smart is to read a lot of books and ask a lot of questions. So I asked him, you know, how is it that he could keep people's attention so well? And he said he studied a guy by the name of Garner Ted Armstrong, um, who was a TV evangelist. And we don't have too many TV evangelists uh, like we used to. Apparently, there's a big shortage of hairspray. But uh, I think that uh, he studied him at Armstrong's technique for getting people's attention was, you know, he'd he stop and he'd say, now listen to me. And whenever he said, now listen to me, he would tell people, that's the time you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. And so the people would sit up and they'd listen to Garner, Ted Armstrong. Well, Jan used the same technique. And, but he had a lot of other techniques for getting people's attention. And of course, humor was the other one. Humor became a great behavior modifier. So as a result of that experience, I... Uh, went to school, studied psychology, spent 10 years at uh, the Laugh Stop, uh, the Comedy Store, uh, the Golden Sales uh, Comedy Inn for about 10 years watching comedians do their thing. Now, <clears throat> I didn't get up and do uh comedy um that was not my thing although i did make my living as a humorist for many years but um there's a difference between being a comedian and being a humorist but comedy or using a little humor was a way to change a person's behavior so jan sacred had a, a just a tremendous influence uh, on me in that regard so to put it simply uh, we are really a collection of the individuals that have inspired us uh, that have uh, motivated us. And uh, uh, if you're lucky, uh, you have quite a few of people like that in, in your life. And if you don't have a lot of people like that in your life, then you need to go out and find them.
0: So what is the most valuable non-aviation skill you've learned as a flight instructor?
1: Wow, good question. Um, you know, when you ask a martial artist uh, what. Whether they've ever, and I'm talking about an authentic martial artist, somebody that's practiced for martial arts for years, you ask them, hey, um, have you ever used your martial arts? The wisest of them will say, I use it every day.
0: Hmm.
1: Because martial arts is more than kicking and punching people. Although that that's that can be part of the excitement, of course, as long as you're not the one getting kicked and punched. But um, the... Uh, uh, the, the idea there is that the philosophy is that, you know, you carry beyond your actual uh, physical skills and you apply the mental skills that are associated with the art. Well, when it comes to flight instruction, it's the same thing. Um, the n- most valuable non-aviation skill, I would say, that I've taken over into m- my my everyday life is the ability to communicate. In other words, Probably the single most important thing to do as a flight instructor is to define your objectives in behavioral terms. And by that I mean, instead of saying, Bob, I want you to add more right rudder. That can be kind of a deadly thing in an airplane, you know, because you didn't tell them how much, what more means. They have no idea how to measure or gauge that. But if you were to say, Bob, I want you to add one inch of right rudder. I want you to push the right rudder in one inch worth. I want you to push the rudder in the width of your toe, uh, your big toe, and I want you to do it now. That is defining your objectives in behavioral terms. That has been an amazing thing when it comes to making sure that uh, people understand what you say and what you're requesting them to do or the information you're trying to provide them. But uh, (laughs) I'm As a young flight instructor, and again, you get me so excited about this, as a young flight instructor, I learned something that became exceptionally valuable to me. And I've used this all throughout my life, too. And this was inspired by a conversation with my dad at one time. Uh, We were talking about, you know, how do you, you know, if you're like 21, 22, 23 years old, and you're teaching people how to fly, it's very easy for some of them to try to leverage an advantage over you uh, to get what they want. Uh, That's just the natural uh, aspect of human nature: People will always try to apply a little bit more power to get what they want. They're operating uh, in terms of their own incentive system. That's just the way human beings are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I was having trouble dealing with that, especially with lawyers. Lawyers can be quite pushy sometimes. You know, they're very smart, <laughs> and they're you know that's their job to be. To be pushy and to stump for their client. So uh, my dad and I, we had a conversation and then out of that conversation came this idea. You have to have compassion and standards. I have compassion for what uh, people are attempting to acquire, what people want to do. You know, people have their own needs and you want to, you know, you want to give them what they want. Maybe they want to solo at night. Well, I never let anybody solo at night, not on not on my ticket. They want to solo at night. They can do it after they get their private pilot certificate, uh, but I'll give them a lot of dual at night, but I just never let them solo at night. The risk is, is much too high in my opinion. That's just me. But when they say, well, no, I want to fly solo at night, I would say to them in this, I have yet to have this not work. If you say it right, I say, listen, my standards are that no one solos at night that's my standard. And you see we don't we don't argue with someone's standards because standards are they're fundamental. It's what your mom and dad would say to you when you said, "Look, mom, dad, I want to get a big tattoo of a of a, a giant military ship." on my chest, you know, here you are 13 years old, you barely have a chest. And, uh, you know, maybe they could put the bow on there, uh, or the stern, but there's no way they're getting the whole ship on there. Cause you have a skinny little chest. So, uh, and your dad says, no, you say, why not? He says, that's, that's my standard. nobody, nobody we're not doing that in this family. So there was no arguing with that. So that was a, that was a powerful lesson for me, perhaps one of the most powerful non-aviation lessons, other than the fact that I learned how to say no. You know, ultimately, that's what the lesson was. You learn to say no. That's my standards. I'm sorry, we we just can't do that. More often, you say yes because you try to please your, uh, you please your uh, your student or the people you're working with. In this case, outside of aviation, you want to please people. That's what we do. But sometimes you just have to say no, and that's how to say it.
0: Yeah, you know, and I and I agree with all of what you just said. And one of the points that that really stuck out for me was the idea of compassion and and um, understanding. That people want to achieve certain things, but there may be blocks in the way, and and understanding that sometimes that can be a disappointment. And how do you navigate those disappointments so that it yes. doesn't hinder the training or even uh, you know put a stop to it? And I think so many of your instructors don't understand that.
1: But oh no, no, you, you, Listen, you, uh, you, you hit. You, you've you've focused on something that is so extremely important here. This is uh, very observable during instrument training, the initial part of instrument training, because most people, when they start instrument training, they have a good idea about, hey, listen, I'm going to get to fly approaches, and that is going to be so exciting. I can't wait to do it. Yeah, great. Neither can the flight instructor. Uh, you know, everybody wants to fly approaches, but. If you jump into flying approaches before you have a chance to inculcate the basic fundamentals of attitude instrument flying, there's not a way in the world they're going to do well at flying instrument approaches. As a matter of fact, the original FA instrument flying handbook uh, said, and I, I found this absolutely fascinating the first six lessons of instrument training are breaking, uh, basically broken down into teaching attitude, pitch control, bank control, and power control. Pitch, bank, and power control. The first six lessons, we're talking about six hours plus of training on those three fundamentals. Now, of course, everybody wants to move beyond that, but it's the flight instructor's job to sell the student on the reasons why they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy thing to do so you have to sell them as a matter of fact uh, the fellow I told you about Jan Saker also led me to this understanding that when you teach people I've always I find this fascinating when you teach people you think about what you're trying to do when you teach them you're trying to affect a relatively permanent change in behavior that's what teaching leads to learning is a relatively permanent results in a relatively permanent change of behavior okay fine but when you teach them if you approach it as if you are trying to sell them something, then you can approach it in a more meaningful way to them, such right. as uh, Percy Whiting's five great rules of selling. Percy Whiting. Attention, interest, conviction, desire, and closure. And you got to get their attention, which Jan was really good at. Interest. Oh, what an interest. I, I have to show you uh, that the, there's something unique about what I'm going to do. Desire, I gotta make you want to do it. Um, attention, interest, conviction, con- you've got to want to do it. Uh, desire, and enclosure. Teaching crosswind landings, good example. And I'll bring this back to the instrument thing in a second. Crosswind landings, interest. I put the student on final approach in a strong crosswind, and all of a sudden the airplane starts moving to the side of the runway center line. I have got their interest now. Conviction, I take the controls and I say, watch this. Typically, a very dangerous phrase for a flight instructor to use. But I say, watch this. And I take, I turn the airplane back in a crab condition, and then I'm demonstrating this, hold the crab all the way down, modifying the crab as necessary, and then rudder to align the runway or the uh, longitudinal axis with the runway centerline right aileron in order to with the right cross to uh, c- counteract for drift and the airplane staying right down the centerline without the tower having to activate the runway centerline widening device and the student is watching this and he's in interest now i've really got his interest and i say desire ah here are the behavioral tools that'll allow you to do exactly what i did Well, how do I do it? How do I do it? Put them on final approach. Show them how to do it. Uh, And then conviction, attention, interest, uh, conviction, desire. And the desire is now that they want to do it themselves. The conviction is that they have the tools that they can do it themselves. Desire, oh my gosh, I can actually do it myself because I've got the tools uh, that helped convince me that I can actually do this. And I close the sale by making sure that they walk away with the behavior. And it's just a different way of approaching, but it ensures a relatively more permanent change in behavior. You see what happens when you ask me questions like this? I I get all excited. Coming back to flight training, and then with instrument training, I've got to, and attention, interest, conviction, desire, and closure, sell the idea that a, a student needs to spend a lot of time, relatively a lot of time, six hours is a lot of time six lessons excuse me uh mastering the fundamentals of attitude instrument flying if you can do that you get good instrument students if you can't do that you know typically the students going to end up on one long learning plateau during the instrument training process Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so there (laughs) that's what happens when you ask me that question well Uh, it's such a interesting thing fascinating
0: it really is. And, and it sort of leads into the next question, which is, uh, you know, what do you enjoy most about flight instruction?
1: Uh, well, well, okay. Uh, this is something that uh, an interviewee should never do in an interview. But let me ask you this. What okay. do you enjoy? most about flat instruction. And I'll tell you what I enjoy. Sure. What is it? I'm I'm just curious because you're going to find commonalities here.
0: Okay. Well, I, my favorite thing was always teaching a difficult subject, something that a student had come to me and said, Hey, you know, I had this in ground school. I had this with other instructors. It never really made sense to me. It never clicked. I, I, I just don't get it. And Mm -hmm. so finding out not just how to teach that to them, but in what way, because, what i found was is that so often instructors were taking the way that they learned and assuming that the next person is going to learn that same way
1: yes yes the yes.
0: creative part of my brain always goes well how can i do it differently so wow, coming up with wow. a new way to teach that to this individual that is specifically unique and then watching the light bulb go off was always my favorite thing.
1: Oh, that's a, excellent. And, and I told you we'd find commonalities on that because I had a feeling that's what you would say. Um, I think that's what a lot of instructors would say. If that instructor has a, uh, let's say, uh, appreciates the creative um, aspect of flight training. And the, the there is so much of an opportunity to uh, allow one's creativity, let's even say one's artistic Uh, Talents to come out in presenting information in a way that makes sense to people. I originally had four different ways of teaching VOR to students. And the reason I developed four different ways was because I was teaching accelerated ground school, um, teaching an accelerated ground school for a company called Accelerated Ground Training in southern california and not the agt that's all over the united states but this was specific to california and uh, we had three days uh, 10 hours a day 30 hours total to teach them uh, sufficient knowledge to pass the fa n- uh, written uh, knowledge exam as well as you know uh, acquire some of the basic tools necessary to be a safe pilot so i had to do this quickly and the uh, uh, the shaping and modification of the uh, explanations i had uh were i I mean i was amazed at how effective some of them were and some were not Mm -hmm. so i weeded out the bad ones used the good ones and pretty much that's what i've used today and am still developing today and this is very similar to exactly what you said i enjoy the creative aspect of teaching looking for new ways to convey the the same information in a way that is perhaps more humorous more interesting uh more acceptable to the way our mind works. And, uh, it's, it's totally exciting. I love yeah, it.
0: Unique to the student.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So what's your most interesting, scary, or fun story you've had as an instructor?
1: Well, um, I, I've actually made my living, uh, telling stories like that. Uh, and not because I've had the most, I, don't know, I traveled all around the country, uh, I've spoken in every, every state and uh, many parts of Europe uh, talking about aviation experiences, aviation training. And um, believe it or not... <laughs> I used to make my living uh, as a humorist uh, telling aviation stories, even to non-aviation people for that matter. Um, uh, and a lot of these stories are very relatable to people because and even people in business, because when you think about it, an airplane is nothing more than a mobile aluminum subcorporation. Mm-hmm. And being pilot in command of an airplane is pretty much like being CEO of an airplane in that there are many um, structurally similar things and as a result, uh, there are many parallels. So uh, strange, unusual, different things in an airplane. I have, and by the way, I have to say this: the most common experience for some people is the most uncommon experience for others. Mm. For me, every experience I had in an airplane, everything, anything unusual that happened, I thought about it a lot, and in many cases, uh, I, I, without realizing this was the case. I realized you could extract a great deal of humor from that situation without taking too much artist's license, by the way. Um, I had one student once, uh, his name was Claude, and 65 years old, one of the most wonderful older gentleman that I, 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 he was just a real prince, just a wonderful man. I really enjoyed, he was an engineer and, uh, I couldn't leave him alone with the airplane cause he'd take it apart, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I just enjoy the guy so much. Uh, and I, I didn't realize that, um, he had false teeth and, uh, one time we're in the airplane, I got the hood on him and we used a hood at that, that time. And he's doing his, his instrument training and uh, you know for the private pilot certificate and this is this is how he flew this is how he moved the controls and uh, because that's how you're supposed to move the controls when you fly instruments and uh, all of a sudden he goes "Ah, ah and he sneezes he sneezed so hard that in the Cessna 150, we were in cruise flight and uh, we lost about 15 miles per hour, I think. So we ended up near a stall and I'm exaggerating there, of course, but he really sneezed hard and he blew out his upper, his upper plate onto the dashboard and it skid across, skidded across the dash. Oh, gosh. And I, I'm looking at that and I, my first thought was, now there is something you don't see every day
0: yep (laughs) and
1: and i didn't know what that was so you know because you don't think see things shooting out from underneath the hood like that and i looked and i looked over at claude to see if anything else had detached itself from him and he's looking at me and he goes did you did you see him and and i looked at him and i go "Uh, they're over there he says get them i said no you want them you go get them and uh, so i i got the plotter and scooped it over and said open up boom goal and, uh, so he ended up uh, with his, I didn't actually do that, but he ended up, uh, you know, just putting his upper back in, but you know, that stuff you just don't see now that would not ordinarily be a funny experience, but it was funny because when you stop and think about it, there's a lot of anxiety involved in something like that. And it could be potentially embarrassing, but <laughs> he was just laughing and I was having a great time laughing. I also had one student one time during a stall, in an old Sester 150 freighter. Uh, It's an old Cessna 150. You know how these old airplanes get sometimes. This was really old. And uh, you'd pull the stick all the way back, and the airplane wouldn't stall. It would just sit there and it just settle uh, it was coordinated and as a result it, it there was no clean break here so she's doing the stall and she's got the stick all the way back the yoke and the airplane wing is dipping a little bit like this and she's trying to maneuver the controls like this and of course at that slow speed it's not lifting a wing the airplane is just kind of it's like a falling leaf stall in this in this instance so she, she gets so frustrated she lets go of her controls reaches over and grabs mine thinking that i somehow or another disconnected her controls ah ah, and uh of course i thought i didn't know what was happening there and uh so i thought wow well, you know uh maybe she just wants to fly using my controls thinking they work better and uh, we had a good laugh about that that was just so funny but i have had so many crazy experiences like that that are again when when they happen they don't may not appear to be as funny but they're fascinating examples of um, human beings encountering the unusual, the strange, the uh, sometimes unexplained. and It's man versus machine and uh, the conflict we have with the machines that we operate. And it, uh, I find it to be all completely fascinating. So, again, I managed to make a living uh, out of those stories for a long period of time because I found them and other people apparently found them interesting to listen to, too. So
0: in your mind, what quality or skill makes for an exceptional flight instructor?
1: I, I don't I honestly don't think you can be a, a a good flight instructor if if you don't have as part of your incentive system the desire to do well for others. Hmm. There are there are enough flight instructors out there that have the incentive system of building flight time only. Now, there's nothing wrong with the incentive system of building flight time. I mean, that, there's just that, that's how you build flight time. That's how you gain experience. But your primary focus has to be on doing well and doing good by your charges. You have to want them to succeed. And they have to be primary in your thought. So here's where the compassion uh, comes in you You have to there's a high degree of empathy uh, with any good teacher they, they rate high on the empathy index and uh, the extreme end of that index would be on the opposite side of the index would be the narcissistic uh, uh, aspect of that bell curve and uh, Consequently, um, that doesn't serve the student well, so any any type of narcissistic tendency and or personality leads to, uh, in in this instance, uh, a a less than, um, well, equitable and enjoyable instructor-student arrangement. By the way, you know, this is one of the things that I've always believed about flight training, and that is, if somebody's going to have a good flight training experience, they dang well better be a good consumer. And that means that they better go out and find themselves the flight instructor that best suits them. You just have to do a lot of gumshoe work ask a lot of questions uh, of these flight instructors and uh, look for reputation you, you just need to collect as much evidence a, as you can and if you're a good flight instructor then you just make it easy for other people to get the evidence they need you know you show them your gold seal you have testimonials from your students uh, you give your students numbers phone numbers so that uh, they can call your pers- prospective students' numbers, they can call your previous students and get, you know, right there, a uh, an actual testimonial. If I were doing this uh, starting out again, I'd have a, a page full of video testimonials of all my students and say, yeah, this is where you go. You can write these people, ask them. I'm happy to give you um, the best quality flight training that money can buy. And assuming you can meet your own standard, then, man, I'll tell you, you'll have more business than you know what to do with.
0: Yeah, leave a lot of breadcrumbs for the students to find you
1: absolutely easy to find exactly exactly so what aspect
0: of being a flight instructor best prepared you for what you do now
1: you know one of the things that when i knew i was going to do this um i thought i i would this um interview with you and answer the 10 question uh, participate in the 10 question challenge one of the things i thought about was what, what is it that has made a, a a big impression upon me in terms of what I've learned from flat instruction and how I've used those skills, and uh, one one of the things that be, was very very apparent to me is I, I have this insane preoccupation with feedback, and and let me explain that um, w- w- we can only change the way that we're behaving. Uh, assuming we want to change our behavior in a more uh to to be more effective at accomplishing what we want to accomplish in life um to accomplish learning a learning another behavior to accomplish acquiring a skill uh to accomplish meeting goals we have to pay attention feedback you need feedback in many cases it's easier to live the illusion that you're doing a much better job than you are or that you're moving in the direction that you want Uh, illusions are sometimes very very useful Uh, but when it comes to actually operating in the real world you need to have feedback so i learned how to pay attention to feedback and i learned this when i was when i first started out speaking uh, to large groups, uh, I tried to pay attention to feedback, which to the feedback they were offering, which is a little different from what you get when talking one on one. If I'm talking one on one with you, I'm looking ve- I'm looking into your eyes, and if you know if that makes you feel uncomfortable, stand staring in somebody's eyes. You stare at the bridge of their nose. They'll never know the difference. <sighs> and uh, as, as a result, uh, you, you you have this personal connection with someone. I get feedback that way. Talking to a large audience, nah you can never tell what a large audience is thinking in the micro. You can tell in the macro if they're, you know, laughing, having a time, but you can always have one guy up front who looks who's looking at you and he's going like this, you know, wait till after the program. And, uh, and then at the end of the program, the guy comes up to you and say, it says that is the best show I have ever seen. That's the most amazing thing. You know? So with big groups, it's entirely different that said, and that notwithstanding, uh, You have to be able to acquire the information that tells you how to reorient and renavigate your way toward the goal that you want. And a good example of that is this teaching people how to fly. <clears throat> one of the things became apparent to me was, yeah, we, everybody has a different learning style. Well, in reality, they don't. <laughs> they, that's kind of a uh, one of the great misconceptions uh, in uh, in psychology. There really aren't that many different learning styles except pop psychology has made it so. But ultimately, people learn either in the sense of uh, working on specifics or working from the global perspective. Those are two big ways of, of approaching uh, learning. And so uh, what I would do is I would ask people how they want me to teach them. It was one of the most amazing revelations I had ever had. I said, listen, um, how would you like me to teach you? And then I just let them talk. Because in many cases, we talk too much as slide instructors. I just I just shut up and let them talk. And the things that will tell you about how they learn because keep in mind everybody you teach has learned something difficult in their life uh, at some time in their life they've they've learned something difficult, challenging, complex or comprehensive and consequently if you let them t- tell you how they need to be taught it just makes the job so much easier. And so that's feedback. And so I became, uh, I became obsessed with it and try to uh, get it whenever I can. I asked for it. Sometimes it's not the feedback I want to hear, but you know, Hey, I'm a big boy. So, uh, you know, we take the good with the bad, but that's, that's life. That's the way it works. And ultimately it means you get to where you want to be. You accomplish what you want to accomplish in a shorter period of time with ultimately a lot less strain and struggle.
0: So this is a piggyback uh, question to the last one. So how did you utilize your time as a flight instructor to transition into what you professionally do now? I know you still do flight instruction, but how did that come to be?
1: Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, my roots um, as a uh, a flight instructor were uh, grounded in ground school. And I've always enjoyed ground school because that is a way to make a, a very big impression on a lot of people in one setting. It's also, it's it's, it's basically the way I got a lot of students when I was first learning to fly. I would teach ground school with that three-day accelerated ground school program. But I would do, I mean, I would do safety seminars and I did a lot of safety seminars in the 70s and the 80s, hundreds of them. The FA has given me a nice big stack of awards for all the seminars that I've done over the years. And that was, I I felt very honored for that. Uh, But I I did that, uh, it was just a great way To sell people on why they should fly with me Mm -hmm. and it was the best kept secret in all of aviation that's why one year of flight training i put in 1242 hours of dual dual given wow i I could never do that again that uh it, it dang near killed me um i was in and out of the airplane uh it seemed like just all the time uh it was it was a lot of work insanely fun but a lot of work and so uh, getting back to, to your question, how did what I uh, did at that time and, and am still doing, prepare me for what I'm doing now. And basically now, you know, I, I do a lot of, I create educational courses um, in hopes of being able to train a lot of people at one time. I've written seven books. Uh, I've, I think I have around 10 educational courses. I have several audio books and uh, maybe around over 350 articles and pieces I've written over the years about aviation. And um, I would say that the skills of being able to uh, translate behaviors or, or uh, ideas into behaviors is what, what I left with and and what I used from whenever I got out of the cockpit what I use today in order to be able to teach people. So um, you know, ba- basically, learning how to communicate, uh, being able to uh, ch- talk about behavior in, be, uh, in, in uh, objective terms, or define my uh, uh, objectives in behavioral terms. Most important, understanding that there's just not one way to learn has allowed me to create the kind of courses that and books that I wanted to create that help. Uh, people understand the concepts of aviation better no great mystery there for me you know it's it's amazing whatever just being a flight instructor for a limited amount of time can teach you so many wonderful things as a matter of fact I knew a lady who was a chief pilot for a commuter airline in Florida and I was doing a flight instructor revalidation clinic Uh, I was teaching a clinic in Florida many years ago and uh, she came up to me and she said you know whenever I hire anybody as a pilot at my airline I always look for the experienced flight instructor Hmm. and and i said to her you know that doesn't surprise me but i'm curious why is it that you do that and she says because if you're an experienced flight instructor and you've had a successful uh tenure as a flight instructor you clearly know how to communicate now see you can be an experienced teacher with you know uh, uh 10 years of teaching in a high school setting and that's fine and that's good a lot of experience there but if you're an experienced flight instructor then you sitting next to somebody in this tiny little mobile aluminum sub corporation so to speak this tiny little cockpit and then you're going to talk to them and after 10 hours of talking with them 15 hours maybe you're going to let them fly this thing themselves you have to have some chops at being able to communicate because if you don't if you can't do it well they're going to crash that airplane or they're going to scare themselves and they'll never come back to aviation again. So, uh, she, and I thought what she did and what she said really made a lot of sense and what a great insight for hiring people, uh, that are able to get along with other people that can communicate and would probably be great in the cockpit and conversely. People that don't do well as flight instructors, that don't have the reputation, don't have a good success rate for the amount of time that they've put in, are that's probably a, a warning sign that that's not the kind of person you want uh, involved in any type of aviation and endeavor.
0: Well, we're on the home stretch because I got one more question for you. And that is, if you could give a new instructor one piece of advice for success in the profession, what would it be?
1: Boy, that's uh, you saved the best for last, haven't you? Uh, that's, a, that's a great, great question. And uh, um, those kind of questions always f- force you to focus everything you've learned down into just a few short words that uh, that can be offered. And uh, okay, I got it. I got it. It's, it's This has been, uh, again, uh, a functioning principle of mine for my entire life. There are only two ways to get smart there are only two ways to get smart. Number one, you've got to read a lot of books. Select the ones you have behind you. Number two, you have to ask a lot of questions. But if you read a lot of books and you ask a lot of questions, you'll get smart. If you don't read a lot of books, and by the way, books, I mean read uh, material, good material. um, And if you don't ask a lot of questions, it's very, very difficult to penetrate the uh, many, many confusing aspects that we're confronted with with life. But once you start doing that, you know it's amazing. People love answering your questions, and if you find somebody that has knowledge you want, and you make a, a sincere attempt at learning that information, I, I, it's people love to help. You want to know why? People are natural teachers. Hmm. People will offer up as much as they can uh, and as as reasonably as they can uh, to anybody that uh, is willing to absorb the information that they can share. It's very flattering, of course, for people to uh, be able to answer your question. And people like to be flattered. So uh, that's uh, a great way to get smart. And uh, if you read one book, if you read one book a month, you're in the top 1% of the intellectual elite in the country. Uh, easy. Actually, you're in the top 0.05%. People just don't read as much anymore, and that's unfortunate. Uh, but wow, what a great way to get smart. Sure. And uh, all these books back here, most of them uh, I've read, looked through, uh, studied, and you know, those, especially mine right there. Uh, <laughs> I had, and I wrote all those things myself. I did all the illustrations. I did. Uh, all the animation in my e-courses. I'm not saying that to be like the kamikaze pilot who has to do all this bragging ahead of time. Um, <laughs> I am I, saying that for one very important reason. Uh, you know, a guy of average intelligence decides he's gonna learn how to, oh yeah, write. So how did I do that? Hmm, okay, I did exactly uh, the way the uh, many well-known writers did. I uh, found out what other people were writing, uh, that people liked, I studied it, you know, uh, Frank Kingston Smith, um, Len Morgan. Uh, um, let's see, oh, Richard Bach, and I read all the articles that these, all I could get my hands on, uh, going back several years, and I found out what it was that they were doing, and then I realized I know exactly what they're doing. I know the formula, and so I mimicked the formula, and then uh, of course spice that with my own personality, what little there is, and. I came up with something that works for me. <clears throat> so again, that's reading a lot of books and asking a lot of questions. It's just the simplest thing in the world and doesn't take much to do it.
0: I, I love it. I love it. And, and Rod, we made it. We, uh, we went on a journey together and we have gotten through the 10 questions. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I'm actually My very... Pleasure. What fun. Yeah I I'm, I'm I'm proud to say that uh that this is the last in the uh the 10 question series we've we've had a a long journey and learned a lot and have had some amazing guests like you and and to you and and everyone else before you who has participated with this with me um, you know, I'm I'm humbled and, and happy to have been able to share something uh, so interesting and, and uh, amazing with the the flight instructor community. So thank you so much for your time. Well, well,
1: thank you, John. And uh, yeah, I I don't blame you. If if I had me on, I'd make it the last one uh, simply <laughs> because I'm not sure I could go through this again. So uh, from your perspective, uh, so <laughs> I had a great time. I just loved it. I just love talking about aviation. And by the way, kudos to you for uh, asking <clears throat> great, great questions. I I thought it was. Uh, fascinating the way that you you uh, put the questions in order and ask some of them and and uh those were very insightful uh they they caused me to stumble and think here and uh i didn't anticipate them so i that was uh, that was very very nice and uh i i had a lot of fun thinking about them and and talking about them with you and again you folks at NAFI are doing a great job so i feel honored that you had me uh and i look forward to uh look forward to participating and again maybe at some future time